Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, do you like to throw like dinner parties, put together like appetizers for things? Or are you, yeah. Do you call yourself a foodie? I am a foodie. I don't do a lot of dinner parties anymore, per se, mm-hmm. but I do like to whip up a nice balsamic onion and um, feta or goat cheese pizza. Yeah. You know, just on the fly. Oh, yeah. Sprinkle well, some you know, rosemary. Goat cheese pizza is always so good. Like really goat is. cheese pizza with like grapes and rosemary. I love that. Oh, yeah. grapes. All right. Yeah. I know what I'm going to add now. So these these are very, you know, these are modern foods. These are, um, you know, we're, we we pretty much have everything in the world at our disposal. Yeah, I was about to say, I, I, I should... Um, I should point out that the balsamic onions I use are from a grocery store chain that are frozen, oh, okay. which makes me being a foodie super easy. <laughs> to your point. Well, but but even you know there are even so many even if you're not gonna even if even if you're gonna use raw materials you know there, there's just so many at our disposal. True. Uh, so so modern cuisine just encompasses everything. But have you ever attempted to cook? With ancient methods or to, to prepare ancient recipes. Have I churned my own butter? Yeah. Have I, uh, created a little hole in the ground in my backyard and, and just filled it full of hot coals and, yeah, and grilled up some stuffed a pig in there? Yeah. Uh, no, I haven't. Okay. No. Well, I, I don't think, uh, think I have either, but it's, uh, it is a fascinating, uh, prospect. Uh, the idea of inviting people over or just, you know, just, just you know, preparing this nice meal, setting the table and then it's, uh, you know, like nuts and bugs. Nuts and bugs. Yeah, nuts and bugs, which could be very, very uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not setting this up like, oh, this is gross and the goat cheese pizza is great. The goat cheese pizza is great, but but bugs and nuts are good, too. I mean, so are uh, you saying that, like this is pl- the Pleistocene era dinner party? Yeah, it's like the Pleistocene dinner party. Uh, we're, we're kind of trying to imagine here uh, would would be a very different affair than uh, than what we're used to. But it but it but. As we try and understand what people ate in the past, it is kind of challenging because we don't always have the best kept records of what right. people ate, uh, especially when you get back, you know, obviously into prehistoric times. It's called prehistoric because there's not really any recorded history. You have to depend on fossil records, uh, you know, looking at the actual teeth of our, our ancestors and seeing what they were capable of eating. Yeah. And when we looked at Neanderthals, we actually, uh, or Neanderthal, as yeah. they are called, we actually found that meat really wasn't as present in their diet as people thought. Yeah. And in fact, there was a lot more vegetable matter and so on and so forth. And that meat as a main source of protein is sort of a myth because it's very obvious that bones would subsist better than vegetable matter, right? Yeah. I mean, you have to keep in mind, catching something to eat is kind of a challenging affair. Like if you had to go catch an animal and eat it right now, um, I mean, not counting pets, not counting squirrels that are so used to the, uh, the presence of humans that you could go and grab one with your hand. Yeah. Um, you know, in a, in an actual prehistoric in- environment where everything is fearful of everything else, you know, it's, it's a lot harder to actually go out and catch that much meat. Right. I would be toast. And, I think most of us would be toast if we had to go out and actually get our, except for, uh, for Mark, uh, Zuckerberg, of course. Yeah. But then also speaking of toasting, I mean, that's another thing too. Uh, since, since cooking, uh, which we'll get to in a lot in, 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 in a few minutes, uh, is can be used as a means of preserving meat. That's mm-hmm. the thing too. It's like say you're a you know prehistoric tribesman, you bring down some sort of large animal. Well, get eating because you only have so much time before that that meat is spoiled in a warm environment. Right, and hopefully yeah. you've got a salt flat nearby, right? So you can at least preserve some of it if yeah. you know the methods. If yeah. the methods have been taught to you, if, if there's enough language at this point to uh, communicate this. Yeah, there was the what was the movie about the kid who. Uh, 
who goes out into the wilderness to survive? Oh, uh, this is a John Krakow um, book, right? It'd be yeah. based off of that. I cannot remember. Into the Woods or something in, like yeah, that. Yeah, in, Into the Wild. Into the yeah, Wild, yeah. thank you. Yeah, like there's a scene in that where he, he kills a large animal and he's looking to try and, you know, preserve the meat as fast as possible and it just ends up failing because it's, it's a huge undertaking, mm-hmm. especially if you as a people have not developed the technology to do it yet. Yeah. Well, and let's just try to, let's do a quick timeline if we, if, if, uh, if people will allow us such an indulgence of what we're looking at when we talk about these kinds of foods. Yeah. Um, before we became an agrarian culture, um, we're talking actually a much longer, like 20,000 plus years ago, you're really looking at food sources such as very basic water, ice, salt, uh, again, if you've got a salt bed handy, fish, mushrooms, eggs, right? So you yep. could probably creep up to a little nest and grab some eggs. Easy pickings. Easy pickings. Um, some grains. And, of course, insects. Yes. Really important. This is called entomophagy, right? When you eat insects, it's a great source of protein. Yeah, because they're everywhere. Uh, they they. I mean, they're, they're just everywhere. <laughs> and, and, yeah. And, and, and they're so easy to catch. Generally, you're not going to have to fight for your life. To grab, uh, you know, a nice juicy um, grub to eat. Yeah. You just got to know where to dig, and, know where to tap. Right. And, and if you are in the West, that probably sounds weird. But um, obviously in, in some Eastern cultures, this is, you know, street food for people. It's, it still exists. Yeah. yeah it's still traditional uh, food in, in many parts of uh, Asia and Africa. And, uh, you know, you can go on the streets of uh, Bangkok and get uh, fried uh, insects. And supposedly it's delicious. Yeah. I didn't get to try it when I was there. There was all sorts of street food, but I, we didn't actually get to see the... Uh, the insect card. Because I, I would have There's a reason tried. to go back. Yeah, there's totally a reason to go yeah. back. Yeah. Um, and then you've got the sort of post-agrarian uh, 15,000 years ago or so. Uh, you've got sheep, wheat, cherries, and almonds. Yeah, so, this is after we're domesticating animals. Yeah. We're, we're growing. We actually have early agriculture. So we're growing up some plants we're going to use. We've got animals that we are controlling. And they're not going anywhere. And we can kill and eat them at our... Uh, uh, at our whim. Yeah, but still, we're talking about sheep here. We're not talking about cows or pigs or anything else. Right. I mean, it's still very limited. And then... The sheep were the first to, to get pulled in, right? They yeah, were, they were. Yeah, they're kind of dumb. Sorry, guys. Um, but then, oh, 7,000 BC, beer and wine. Oh, yes. Yeah, fermentation of fruit and hops. And then you start to see cattle domestication um, in, a, in a very real way. And then in 6,000 BC, you've got maize, tortillas, honey, chickpeas... 5,000 B.C., milk, yogurt, 3,600 B.C., popcorn, <laughs> which just, you know. <laughs> that was the big that was the big uh, invention that year. The, yeah, uh, yeah, and they had little carts out there, and they had the little red and white striped buckets. Yeah. Yep, um, and, then, and then look at this. Okay, this is interesting. So you've got popcorn, 3,600 B.C., 3,000 B.C. spices starting to be used, and then 500 B.C., skip forward, sausage. Wow. Okay. And then this is interesting. Obviously, I've, this is a highly selected list. There's a ton of stuff that we could go on forever, and it would be like reading the, the telephone book. It would be highly unpleasant. But um, the reason I wanted to point some of these out is because as you go, uh, as you as you come more toward the present, you see more and more processing of food. So 9th century coffee and cod, because they go so well together. Mm-hmm. 11th century corned beef and cider. 15th century jellies, oh, jams, and <laughs> preserves. And then 1769 tofu in America. 1824, A1 steak sauce, 1879, saccharin. And then we've got Crisco in 1911, Vegemite 1922, 1937, the the, the halcyon of uh, processed foods, uh, uh, Spam. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
So what are we seeing? I mean, what we're seeing here is just our ability to manipulate food more and more throughout yeah, the centuries. To, to the point where it becomes increasingly more like this sci-fi idea of like enjoy some food cubes, you know, where it just sort yeah. of comes out and it doesn't even look anything like a, like a, a creature or a plant and maybe never was a creature. Or a no, plant. no. But I think it's important to sort of talk about this just in the context of I mean, how do we get from, you know, spearing insects and uh, – trying to figure out whether or not a tuber was edible or inedible yeah. to, to getting to this spam. Part. Yeah, because there's a basic like one, like picture yourself in the woods. Like I was doing, I've, I've been doing this a little recently as we've been looking into these food topics. Uh, and I guess maybe I've been outside a little more in the last year. Um, uh, and, uh, and you know, like looking around in a wilderness situation, especially mm-hmm. here in Georgia, you, you look around and, and you're like, wow, what if I just suddenly had to survive right now? Just on my, you know, just had to forage to see what I could, you know, I would, I would be dead, you know, before the end of the day, probably. Well, but, yeah. But you know, as, as a as a wanderer, in a, and that's the thing too. Uh, as humans spread throughout, um, through, throughout the world, and and uh, and found new homes, they had to be able to find these things. And some uh, some areas were more conducive to it than others. Mm-hmm. But basically, early humans, you know, you're going around, you're looking for berries, you're looking for nuts, you're looking for fungus, you're looking for water sources. Yes. And the thing is that all of these can be poisoned if, yeah. if, if you don't know what you're looking for. Some berries, they, they may be, one's really red and it's really good to eat. The other's red and will kill you in a heartbeat. Uh, funguses, ob- obviously, some are going to be delicious. Some are going to make you see the devil and some are going to kill you dead. Water sources, some are going to be clean and wonderful. Some are going to clean you out. Well, this is what when it becomes really important, this whole trial and error process right. and really communicating, you know, among your tribe or, or whatever the situation is like, hey, do not pick this type of mushroom. Bad things happen. It's happened to me. I survived it or someone yes. didn't survive it. So, uh, you know, we that's take the it, holy man. It's like you have to give me those mushrooms. Right. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Just save those for me. But so how do you how do you do trial and error when you're dealing with potentially lethal consequences? I mean, especially it's like. Just say, even if it's just a thing where you get dysentery, mm-hmm. uh, like today, dysentery is, is a lot more treatable, you know, especially in the um, more modern uh, Western civilizations. But but back then, it's like dysentery could be. Uh, I mean, until very recently, dysentery was a death sentence in many places, and it and yeah. still is in many places. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in terms of whether or not something might be poisonous, I mean, there are going to be some clues right off the bat. You know, if you if you bring it up to your lips, does it begin to sting? If you put it mm-hmm. in your mouth, does your you know do you go into anaphylactic shock? Right. Um, these sort of things that might be able to sort of head you off from death before, you know, you actually get there by consuming right. it. So there are some clues that it would give you. But again, the trying to um, orally tell this information is really important. And then later, as an agrarian society with domestication of dogs, it becomes a lot easier. Oh, because dogs, of course, will eat anything. They will eat anything. Yeah. You throw them that, say, hey, check that out. Maybe you have 20 dogs and you have one to spare. <laughs> Um, it's, it's an easy way to figure out whether or not something is, is, uh, edible or inedible. Yeah. Or, well, it's like a dog could eat it and not die. So it must be good for dinner. That's, that's, that's setting the bar kind of low, I think, but you know, it's better than nothing. Yeah. And, and of course, uh, uh, people end up developing all these different myths and stories. You end up with this oral history to share with, uh, uh, with your people that lets you just, you know, kind of like a memorization sheet of what you can yeah. eat and what you can't, um, uh, 
Which is not unlike the the memory palace. That's you know, what I was you, just thinking too. Yeah. It's, instead of just trying to remember, all right, this red berry will kill you, and this one is pretty delicious. You create a story about it, and then it's it'll sink in a lot more. That's right. Yeah. And and I mean, how do we teach our kids right now? To, you know, to avoid things, we we give them scary like. Yeah. You know, Grimm's fairy tales. <laughs> yeah. You know, watch out for the witch. Um, I mean, you know, it's it's all a little bit, you know, in the same uh, manner, I suppose. Yeah. But there you go. I mean, you are foraging. You're you're giving your food scraps to the dogs, and then on top of that, you're probably giving them something new that you're interested in finding out whether or not you want to eat. Um, and all of this starts to evolve into you know this tide of food that becomes available to us. And that we cultivate. But the big, big thing here, obviously, is fire. Right. Yeah. And it's uh, it's really difficult to to figure out when we first began using fire deliberately. You look at some of these estimates and uh, and you can some people say like Asia, 500 B.C. Other estimates are in Africa, even even further in the past. Um, it in it just kind of depends on which one you go with. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to figure out exactly when then, you know, cause obviously you're keeping a fire. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you might use the fire to obviously to keep warm, to scare away animals, um, eventually to craft tools. But at what point do you discover, Hey, if I take this piece of meat and, uh, accidentally drop it in the fire, then if, when it comes back out, it has a different taste, it has, it has a different consistency. Right. Or if I take this potato, which mm-hmm. was inedible and, I cook it, then all of a sudden I have something that's really nutritious right. uh, that I can now eat. So, I mean, because that's the thing about fire. It doesn't just, I mean, it has several, the, the way it changes the property of a food, uh, it, it does so in several different ways. I mean, obviously, um, if you cook f- f- uh, meat thoroughly, mm-hmm. you don't have to worry as much about like parasites. Uh, right. That's just a small thing. You don't have to worry about getting sick as much from it. Um, then the taste is going to be uh, in, in, in many ways better. And then also you're going to be able to digest it easier. The, it's going to bring Which up is, protein. That's a huge part yeah. of that, I, I believe, um, the, the digestion part, because we were talking about this um, a little bit that, you know, back in the day, obviously there was no plumbing. So yeah. you would not want to put yourself at risk for just fooling around with a certain food to see whether or not you, you could eat it. Because, you know, who wants to be doubled over in a cave with diarrhea? Right. Yeah. I mean, you will be shunned. Yeah, and there are not that many caves. Why are you doing it in the cave? Yeah, go outside. On, I know it's yeah. snowing, but <laughs> um it's uh yeah, I mean it's uh it's it's like if we suddenly had a magic sauce that you could pour over rocks and make them edible, you mm-hmm. know? It's kind of like that's the thing. It's like so, being able to cook things suddenly makes things that you could not eat before edible. It it it, it opens up the um the culinary world world a little larger and, and, and yeah. in that way uh, ensures your survival a little more. Yeah. And yeah, there is no question that this gave us the upper hand as yeah. a species. And that's the important thing to realize too about early, I mean, the, these early uh, societies, um, well, even modern society, food is survival. Yeah. You know, I mean, as much as, you know, especially in privileged portions of the world, we get wrapped up in, in food as enjoyment and food as this recreation and this thing that we love, but it's survival. I mean, obviously, and that's an outrageous overstatement of the obvious, but like most outrageous overstatements of the obvious, we do so because you really have to drive home a point that we often overlook. You know, this this was the the key to so many of the roots of modern uh, cuisine was that we had to figure out ways to survive. We had to figure out ways to eat things that we couldn't eat previously, right? And eat things tomorrow that we would otherwise have to eat to eat all of it today. 
Well, yeah, even until the Industrial Revolution, it was pretty much uh, touch and go when it tur- when it came to getting the right amount of food and protein and surviving, right? right. I mean, little kids, you know, uh, babies often would perish because they didn't have enough food or their parents didn't have enough food or mm-hmm. obviously disease um, was pretty rampant as well. So anyway, until we stabilized enough of society, we really didn't take it um, as we do today is like, oh, okay, I'm just going to sit down and uh, have myself a meal here, whether or not it's in a restaurant or I just pull something out of my freezer and it happens to be balsamic onions, which are delicious. So, yeah, preservation um, of food. This is this is key. Well, we, we alluded to this earlier. Like if you if you heat a meat, if you uh, if you cook it right, it can last longer. Like right. The classic example of this is beef jerky. Uh, you know, some people may just, you know, just think, oh, beef jerky is delicious because I can buy it at a truck, truck stop and eat it while I'm driving. Well, you know, and, and, uh, you know, and beef jerky can be really good if, if you're into to that sort of thing, but it's an example of meat that's preserved. I mean, it's right, like, it's like dried. Any, yeah. yeah, it's dried out. It, it can last longer. It's not going to rot and make you sick. Um, and, and we see, uh, several different, uh, food preservation techniques that were uh, essential, uh, early on because especially when you're dealing with harsh winters, You've got to, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like the, what, the grasshopper and the ant, right? The, the ant stores his food away and is therefore able to survive the winter. The grasshopper doesn't and dies during the winter. So we had to learn to be ants, uh, pretty early on, which is taking something delicious now and save it for the winter, even if it's going to be a little disgusting come winter. Oh yeah. You have a really good example of that. A oh, yeah. bag of disgustingness. Yes. I mean, to me, yeah. not to this culture. Yeah. We kind of, some of these are basically their survival foods. They're yeah. things that, and, and you see a lot of these in, uh, in more extreme environments, such as, uh, such as Greenland, mm-hmm. where we have this thing called Kibiak, uh, which we're going to get to right after this quick break. This presentation is brought to you by Intel, sponsors of tomorrow. All right, Kiviak, lay it on me. Yeah, okay. So, it happens in Greenland. All right. So, every year, these little birds, baby birds. Cute, cute I must say. Yeah, very cute little guys. Uh, you know, they're, they're all out. They're all just swarming all over the place. Mm-hmm. This is a great time to eat little birds because they're everywhere, right? Yeah. And they have this great way of catching them. They develop this, it's like this big sort of slingshot net. Like a, like a picture of like a giant butterfly net. And I was thinking of, like Dr. Seussian net. Yeah, it's very Seussian. Yeah. And, uh, they, they sling that thing around. And if you've, uh, there's a, the Discovery BBC co-production Human Planet mm-hmm. has some excellent footage of this in their episode about the Arctic. Um, but they sling this, uh, this net around and they, they catch these birds. And like in a day, they'll just catch hundreds of these things and they'll, they'll catch them and they'll snap their little necks, put them in a bag. And then they'll take them back, back home. Now, what do they do when they get home? Do they fry them up? No. No. Because this is not food for now. This is, because now's a great What are you going to do with 500 ox? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't eat them. You can't eat them all now. It's impossible. And you are worrying about surviving later. But you also can't just, uh, pile them in, you know, a corner of your house or they're going to rot. Other things are going to eat. They're they're not going to be food come winter. So they actually take a page from the, um, the, the book of the Arctic fox, which mm-hmm. will, or uh, pretty much all foxes will do this. This is why they, you know, they, they talk about like a fox getting into a hen house. It'll just kill all the chickens yeah. because the fox's way is to like, well, there's all this food now. I'm going to kill it all and I'm going to bury it. I'm going to hide it and then I'll come back and eat it when it's nice and nasty later on during the winter. So it's the same principle. Um, they, but, uh, but instead of just burying it under a rock, they take the birds. And they stuff them, again, by the hundreds, into a big seal skin. 
and then they they and then they seal it. Mm. Um, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. And then they 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 jump on it, get all the air out of it. Uh, they they literally are jumping on this yeah. right after, and they've sewn the top, right? Yeah, and uh, and they put uh, I think it's like uh, like seal fat on it. To, yeah, to, yeah. To help uh, keep the seal, keep it sealed, and to keep flies away from it. Then they put some big rocks over it to keep anything from digging it up, and and to get the rest of the air out of it. And then they leave it for months. And then when they come back to it, uh, once uh, food is a little more scarce, and they need to start getting into the survival food. Uh, all these little birds have fermented. All right. Mm, yummy. Yeah. So it's, so they say the, the aroma is like, uh, like a really pungent cheese. Yeah. And was it Richard Attenborough who, um, no, it was who's a, narrating John that? Hurt. John Hurt. Yeah. Oh, okay. Huh. Okay. Totally different voices. Yeah. Um, but it, it, I think I remember it saying that it's ready when, when it stings the nostrils. Yes. Which <laughs> I thought, well, wow, that, that is something I yeah. want to eat right there. Yeah. When, uh, when I was watching this episode with my wife for the first time, we were like, oh my goodness, they're, you know, watching them get these out and we're like, please cook those birds. Please cook those birds. And they don't, they, they just, <laughs> no. they just eat it. They just tear into them. And it's, and it's a delicacy. Yeah. And, and I don't want to, I don't really want to focus too much on like, oh, this is gross food because, this this is what's gross to someone else yes. is, is great to someone yeah else. and it's a delicacy to these to, to these guys and uh and it could easily be a delicacy to us if we had developed the taste for it right um so um that being said i do i, I find it really interesting because it I, I love the survival food aspect of it but i'm also really intrigued by its kind of grossness and uh and, and what it really tells us about food preservation about how important it is there are a few other uh really cool examples of survival food uh, from, uh, uh, I believe, Iceland. And a uh, uh, um, guy I know uh, by the name of Andy uh, works for a gaming company that's uh, headquartered in Iceland. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had had a chance to try several of these. So I asked him, I shot him an email and was like, hey, what was the what were some of the more interesting survival foods uh, that you got to try? Because in Iceland now you don't need to eat these things, but right. they're part of the culture and they're, 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 they're something you, you kind of celebrate. Uh, he said that there is a... Um, there is a, um, a shark called the uh, it's a pea shark, and it's uh, it's fermented. It's called a uh, hackerel, so it's kind of like the same you know the same principle. Uh, but it's uh, it's he said it's not that bad if you uh, you take it with a with a shot of <laughs> of uh, of liquor. See, that's the whole point right there. I yeah. think. yeah. And then he said that he said that the worst though was a cold sour ram testicle loaf called the. Hrutsprunger, and uh, he says it's worse than it sounds, and it sounds terrible. Ram testicle loaf. Yeah. <laughs> okay. He said the fish jerky was very good, and uh, he said that the pickled whale blubber was actually fairly good too. So, so some of these things sound kind of, kind of, kind of gross, but apparently they're not that bad. Some of them are sound kind of gross and are kind of gross, at least to the Western palate. But, uh, but again, these are harsh, harsh environments, harsh winters. Right. So you got to take what you have, you got to store it away. And uh, and then be able to get it out and eat it uh, when times get rough. Well, and th- I thought this was interesting. This is from Cooking in Ancient Civilizations by uh, Civilizations by Kathy Kaufman, and she says, "Quote: For thousands of years, the survival and power of a tribe or country depended on its stock and grain. Harvesting, processing, and storing grain stocks was of huge importance, and war was declared only after harvest. Um, and one of the earliest." Records of large-scale food preserving was in ancient Egypt, as we know, mm-hmm. uh, where it was really important to have an adequate, an adequate stock of dried grain. Um, 
And as you know, the, the Nile would flood seasonally. So they yeah. had these big silos where they would store it. And records from 2600 BC show that the annual flooding of the Nile produced surpluses of grain that were stored and kept to feed builders of irrigation schemes and pyramid tombs. The Great Pyramid of Cheops at Giza was built around 2900 BC by slaves fed with stores of grain and chickpeas, onions and garlic. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's the, it's the ultimate, in a way, it's the ultimate survival food because it's, it's grain. It can, it can be kept and then it can be turned into bread or porridge or what have you later on. Yeah. Um, uh, and it becomes in, in early, well, early societies, but really modern societies too. Like grain is, is power. Grain is, is survival and, 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 and bread is essential, especially in an urban environment. I mean, it becomes almost a currency. Yeah. And I think it is very telling that, you know, war would, would sort of take a break during harvest. Yeah. Because, you know, why would you, why would you, uh, you know, disturb one of the most plentiful, bounteous times of food available mm-hmm. to you? I mean, you would be wiping out your civilization. Yeah. And I've also, there, there are different arguments, of course, about you know, like how, War really got got started in human civilization, but there's there is the the argument that you really didn't have war per se mm-hmm. until we had reached the point uh, as as an agrarian culture where we could have these silos of grain, where we could have where a store was something of grain. was worth taking. Yeah, we had a surplus of essential materials right. in the form of grain. It's and, interesting too, yeah. just on a side note, that Costa Rica doesn't have any sort of army. Oh yes, yeah. and what I love about that is their their whole thing is well, if you don't if we don't have something some sort of central government that has you know munitions and this power structure here, then nobody really wants to take us over. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you wanted to take over Costa Rica, I guess the main it's like we really like uh, you know jungles. Yeah, we, we want to take over our sloths. They're high maintenance. Yeah. But no, yeah, that's, but that's one really cool thing about Costa Rica for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so you'd have to, you know, you have these things, like you said, you've got these stockpiles that all of a sudden become very interesting Mm -hmm. to, to other tribes or cultures to take over. Yeah. It's interesting uh, thinking about like grain as survival food and grain is the thing you store away now for, for food later. Um, I feel like in, in the office here at How Stuff Works, I think everybody kind of has, like uh, a survival food stored in their desk. It's true. Like today, I managed to leave without bringing my lunch with me. So yeah. I've got I've got a like noodle bowl in in my desk, which is like you know a little plastic bowl with stuff that looks like dust in the bottom of it, and then you add water and voila, I've got one it becomes too. a soup. Yeah. That's funny. I have that, and I have mac and cheese, and then I have some cocoa from when it was cold <laughs> cold for like four days in the winter. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah. You need see, the cocoa. You see people pulling out oatmeal packs too. You know? Yes, yeah. So, that's that's a big thing yeah. throughout the day too, not just for breakfast. Not enough pickled fish. Come on, yeah. We pickled herring. Yeah. Where is it? Um, <laughs> but it, but yeah. Back to. Uh, to food pre- preservation for just a moment. Yeah. Other techniques include pickling, uh, you know, preserving it in a in a in a, in a vinegar or a, you know a, some sort of a, a, a harsh fluid, um, and and then uh, eventually we get to the point where we can bottle things and can things. But, yeah. But that really comes much later. Um, the uh, the technology for that actually during um, Napoleonic times really gets uh, gets interesting. Right. This was uh, for French troops, right, in an effort to try to preserve food. Right. There was a man by the name of Appert, A-P-P-E-R-T. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I, I just have to share this bit from uh, James Burke's Connections. James Burke, is a, uh, he's covered a lot about the history of science. And uh, he's big on like comparing like, you know, sort of like uh, uh, these different little uh, paths through technology that lead mm-hmm. from something uh, simple to something highly advanced and, and earth shattering. Um, 
But uh, he says here, um, uh, Appert's idea was to preserve food. The container for his first attempts was the champagne bottle. He had handled these bottles often during his earlier years. And as he said, the form of the champagne bottle is most convenient. It is the handsomest as well as the strongest and is of the best shape for packing up. So he placed the food. Oh, that's to, nice. yeah. <laughs> he placed the food to be preserved in the bottles, and he sealed it with a cork. And uh, as they were in the wine business, uh, by wire cages. So eventually, we you know we we learn how to to do this a little better with cans. But yeah, um, I've actually seen footage of of, of one of these bottles, and the, the, it looks kind of gross because it's like ancient soup. <laughs> yeah, why is that so un- unappetizing? I don't know, but uh, this guy was a big you know he was like this is the perfect way. He was envisioning a future where like anytime you wanted to uh, have dinner and you didn't have anything prepared, well you go down to the wine cellar. You get yourself a bottle of wine, a bottle of soup, and uh, you come up and uh, have have something. Hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, okay, that's not bad. Bottle of wine, a bottle of soup. That was a really bad Billy Joel <laughs> joke, sorry. Um, and then you have pasteurization, too, which starts yes. in the late 1800s, which, again, helps us to, uh, you know, pasteurize milk, juices, so on and so forth. Yeah. Makes us a much more portable society as well. Yeah. And freeze-drying. Space missions, right? Exactly, yeah. Even more techniques where we can take the food of today and make it available for consumption later on. Yeah. And then don't forget nitrates and cured meats, talking hot dogs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, this is uh, this is kind of a smorgasbord, if you will, a uh, a buffet table of, of some ancient... Uh, a poo-poo platter. A poo-poo platter of, of ancient and not-so-ancient food techniques about the, the evolution of food and some of the science of food. Um, which we're going to get into more detail in some upcoming episodes. Um, it, I mean, it's all really fascinating because, like I say, the story of food is the story of humans. It's the story of uh, of, of science and technology. And uh, and uh, so it's kind of neat to sort of go back and sort of lay the groundwork and and briefly discuss some of the trends in uh, the evolution of food. Yeah, like how we went from eating insects for basic survival to paying $500 for a hamburger in, you know, one of the toniest restaurants in New York City. Yeah. I'm not kidding. Isn't there like a $500 hamburger? Yeah, yeah. Maybe Goldflex on I it I think or I something. saw that on a, yeah, it's kind of a gimmick at some place. Yeah. Yeah. And when you actually order the hamburger, they have to like send a guy out to get the materials for it. And yeah. Yeah. I don't know. All right. We've got some listener mail. So let's get yes, that. Yes. Let's get out of food and let's get into math. Uh, we, uh, Recently did uh, Math, Music, and Mayhem, another one of our uh, math-related uh, episodes. And uh, we had a listener by the name of Graham from Scotland, and uh, he wrote in and said, As a Ph.D. candidate in physics, I was delighted to see your recent math-related podcast. Whilst these were very interesting, I found your attitudes in the introduction disappointing. For some reason, however, uh, and then um, we'll skip just a bit. Uh, for some reason, however, it is acceptable to admit to being bad at maths. And I believe that your comments serve only to reinforce that this idea is acceptable. I don't expect everyone to have enthusiasm for every topic, but I can't say I've ever heard you confess to disliking a subject in the preface to another podcast. Uh, so I was so saddened by this. because I thought, oh, my gosh, that's definitely not what we were trying to put out there. I think, if right. anything, we were sort of being apologetic in our, our lack of mathleteness. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, Graham, I hope that you understand that um, that we absolutely uh, worship at the at the math altar. If anything, we wish we were a lot better. Uh, but unfortunately, there are a lot of people who, um, you know, with journalism degrees or English degrees like ourselves that are in the same boat. Um, and we certainly have dedicated time to math related subjects because we think it's so interesting. 
Yeah, yeah. I guess I guess we were sort of trying to disarm the uh, the non math listeners in, in a way to say like, hey, don't run, don't run. We're not going to really get heavy into math because we're not really heavy math people, but math is still really amazing. And let's show you why. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Personally, it's a, a tragedy, the great tragedy of my life that I didn't have more of it. The greatest tragedy of my life. Yeah. Uh, but uh, where would you be if you'd been more? You'd be ruling this place by now. Oh yeah, I would yeah. just yeah, I would I'd be in the answer. But uh, but anyway, I th- I think, still think Graham makes a valid comment here, and, and I'm, and I'm happy that we could yeah, and I'm I'm happy that we could. Uh, we could we could mention this uh, in the yeah, podcast and yeah. to sort of uh, address this just in case anyone else was wondering. It's like why do they not like math all that much? No, we we, we like math, but we we do realize our our uh, limitations. Yes, and uh, and as Dirty Harry said, a man has got to know his limitations. That's the truth. So thank you, Graham from Scotland. And since we just did a food podcast, I would love to recite "Ode to a Haggis," but I don't know it by heart. Yeah, <laughs> who's that by? Robert Burns, I believe. Really? Oh, oh, I guess I have heard of Odo Haggis. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, here's another one uh, related to math. This is from listener Paul. Paul writes in and says, Greetings. Just got done listening to Math, Music, and Mayhem. You mentioned Brian May's physics background, and it reminded me that another of my favorite bands is also very mathematical, Tool. One great example of this is the song Lateralis, which makes a lot of use of Fibonacci, Fibonacci sequence. Here is a link to a video that explains it, and he's in this link. And I actually just put this up on Facebook. Uh, of course, it'll be buried by the time this comes. Well, I'll... Yeah, well, you can look it up. Just look up Tool and Fibonacci. And we ha- we actually have a, an article on how stuff works about Fibonacci numbers if you're not really sure what they written are. Written by you. It's quite lovely. Oh, yes, I think it was written by me. But yep. so long ago that I've forgotten every, most of the things about it. Uh, but, yeah, this is the second listener who's mentioned Tool, uh, who I used to listen to an awful lot, and I never really tied in, the, you know, made connections with most of the the, the number stuff. But uh, apparently there is, you know, now that I think about it, there are a number of, of tracks that allude to equations, if you will. So, I don't know. Uh, but we've received a lot of good uh, feedback from people uh, based on that uh, podcast with other um, musicians that are also mathematicians or have some sort of math or science background. Mm-hmm. So it was really interesting. Uh, 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 there were a few that I, I was not aware of. I think it confirmed our suspicions. Yeah. So, uh, anecdotally, at least, the yeah. connection there. So if you have anything you would like to share with us, um, you can check out that Facebook and Twitter page that I alluded to. We are Blow the Mind on both of those. And you can send us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Tomorrow. 